Hello, and welcome to episode 57 of the Movie Brats Podcast. I'm Carter, and joining me, as always, is Jonathan. I see you're eager, ready to go. Jonathan, how are you doing? I'm fine. It's a new year, and I'm 30 now. I had my birthday on Christmas Day, so a bunch of new things happening, but we're going to look back at some of our um, some of the major releases, at least, of 2021. Yes, most most of these came out December. We have one that's all the way back, <laughs> released in November. So it's basically out of theaters right now because Spider-Man No Way Home is occupying pretty much every theater in sight. So see these while you can in theaters. Hopefully they'll still have one or two show times <laughs> going for each of these. Um, the first and they one, might come out more when the Oscar nominations come out. They sometimes re-release them in theaters. Yes, that's already happened for uh, some of them, some of the ones that came out earlier uh, earlier this year. But the one we are going to start off with is the first to be released. It is Belfast, directed by Kenneth Branagh, who's also done Henry V, Hamlet, <laughs> and Thor. I think this is the first movie he's directed uh, in a little while. He's been in a lot of Christopher Nolan movies recently. Um, <laughs> this well, is starring... he, he directed Artemis Fowl, which I think just got dumped on Disney Plus. And recently he did. Yeah, and he did direct Death on the Nile before Belfast. Oh, I and think. Murder on the Orient Express, yeah. Yeah, so he has been directing a lot. At least yeah. I haven't seen one in a long time. <laughs> the Thor was his last... I mean, I I know him best as the modern Shakespeare director, so Henry V, Hamlet, and uh, Much Ado About Nothing. But this I one think the stars... Last, uh... Well, I think the last <laughs> film I saw of his was the uh, live-action Disney Cinderella. I never saw that. Yeah, I always <laughs> like that John Waters put it on his top 10 list that year for art form and said, I fucking love Cinderella. Well, it seems so. like that one was just sort of like a classic take on it. And that's sort of, I mean, he's sort of like a go-to sort of guy to give a sort of old-fashioned Shakespearean feel, which is not really right. the tone of this one. Um, starring Katrina Balf, Katrina. I don't know how to pronounce her name. I think it's Katrina Balf, Judy Dench, Jamie Dornan, and Kieran Hines. It is a semi-autobiographical story from Kenneth Branagh, who wrote the screenplay, of a young boy's childhood in the late 60s in Belfast in Northern Ireland, as his family undergoes a crisis against the backdrop of the sectarian violence between Protestants and Catholics that sort of dominated Northern Ireland for like, you know, 10 or 15 years or so during the Troubles. Uh, Original premiere, September 2nd, 2021, at the Telluride Film Festival. A wide release, November 12th, a Metacritic score of 77, Rotten Tomatoes score of 87, and the recent winner of Best Screenplay at the Golden Globes for Kenneth Branagh. Um, this has been getting like a ton of nominations from a whole bunch of different stuff, like National Board of Review, the BAFTAs, the Golden Globes. It seems like it's pretty much guaranteed to get like a Best Picture nomination and maybe uh, like a few acting nominations <laughs> also, actually. Uh, before we started recording, you said that you, you liked this, but it didn't necessarily leave a huge impression on you. That's very much how I felt about it. Uh, do you want to go into a little more depth of, to your reaction? Yeah, it's charming. It's sweet. It's well-directed, has good acting, but it kind of left my head almost as I was walking out of the theater. I, I left with a good feeling. <laughs> I enjoyed the experience, but uh, it isn't like a profound or, you know, game-changing piece of cinema it's just a mm -hmm. well-crafted little movie it's like 97 minutes or something it's just yes uh, it's like a movie to take your grandparents to 
you know. <laughs> no, it definitely is. But I mean, it had a really good mix of like, because like backdrop of it is like very serious. It starts off with like basically a riot where like a group of armed, violent people just bust up like a whole neighborhood. And, you know, the kid witnesses it and sees everything. And it's right after he like comes back from playing. So have you seen Hope and Glory, the uh, movie from the 80s about the Blitz? No, but the film did kind of remind me of uh, some of Terrence Davies' films, who I'm a big fan of. He did films like The Long Day Closes and uh, Distant Voices Still Lives. I think I got the words right order. Um, but uh, yeah, it's I, one, I think one of the things that's most interesting about this film is its references to uh, other to other films and mm-hmm. uh, especially Westerns, how it takes this very... Uh, you know, it's it's very much a story of this country in this time, but how much uh, even like an Amer- a very American Western could have a big influence on the kid. It's interesting and how he sees like, the world. Yeah, like, like heroes noon, and villains and stuff. Yeah, like that. high high noon in the Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. That mm-hmm. I, th- I thought was interesting how they used the music from High Noon in some of the when he's watching Liberty Valance on TV. I think at one point. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting. The film is almost entirely in black and white, except for some shots of the present day, uh, like bird's eye view. Uh, but there's also some uh, footage of films uh, like Chitty Chitty, Chitty, Bang, Chitty Bang Bang, Bang. <laughs> and uh, stage production. And those are in color, even to the point where there's a shot where you're seeing the kid in the audience and there's this gold hue that is emanating from the stage. So he's in black and white, but the power of cinema or of art theater of some kind performance is right. Storytelling. So, right. And so I think that partially the film is about, you know, how, it's like kind of self-reflexive how how art and, and you know entertainment can be an escape from your life but it also can like have a deep uh connection and meaning to what's going on in your life yeah and one shape how you see sort of current events and stuff like that because right. there's like a showdown between his dad and a local sort of protestant gangster and from the kid's point of view it's very much like a you know western where he's like a showdown with a villain at the end um so I, I i didn't really think about this until i heard an interview with kenneth brown where he talked about like how because this is from a child's point of view everything we're seeing isn't necessarily exactly what's happening which i sort of didn't even think about when i was watching it i was like of course this is how it's happening so i don't know that sort of shaped my perspective of it in retrospect um that it might not necessarily have been like 100 percent factual but um, I don't know. It, I enjoyed it. I mean, it's you definitely see why. I mean, award givers respond to it because it's about the power of art and escaping through art, and it's made by someone who became a you know world famous actor, Hollywood director, uh, Shakespearean actor. So it shows that you can like sort of triumph from very desperate conditions through art. So you can see why awards givers would respond to it, but. Uh, I mean, do you think it's like justified to be a best picture sort of contender? I feel like I haven't been able to fully and accurately judge what's the best of the year since COVID because I haven't watched as many films as I usually do. I feel like I should see it like a hundred movies uh-huh. to count. Um, I've only seen like 60 maybe from last year, but 
uh, I mean, it's not like one of my 10 favorite films of yeah. the year, even of the ones I have seen. But um, yeah, I mean, it's like I, I, I am not surprised at all. It's getting a bunch of nominations. And it's like if something has Judy Dench in a supporting. Well, yeah, role, remember like, like when Philomena was like a huge movie? <laughs> Yeah, or it's you know it's like she was in Shakespeare in Love and she's in it like seven minutes. I think. Yeah. Like, did she win for that one? For yeah, she won actress? supporting actress. Yeah, I think it's like think the shortest like, amount of time, except for besides, maybe like Network, right? Yeah, for Beatrice Strait. Yeah, <laughs> just like a minute. Yeah. Well, I I do think that. Uh, how do you say his name? Siren Hines. Kieran, I think. Okay. Yeah, he's he been plays a really, the grandfather. Uh, he gets all the best lines. It's it's a very winning performance. It's one. He's one of those actors that if you don't recognize his name, you've probably you've seen, seen him, him. Yeah. a dozen movies. He was in right? Game of Thrones. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, I think that uh, this is going to be kind of mean, but I did think the little boy was a little bit, gosh, jolly, like a little <laughs> bit of a kid actor. Like he 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 was a little bit not, you know, maybe well, you're that's I, that's the sort of thing about centering a whole movie around a kid is you know it's not like they're necessarily going to give the most compelling of performances because most kids are basically just like themselves but with a camera on them so well we're going to talk about licorice <laughs> pizza and they were never actors before and they're well he's you know, a little older. Off- this kid's like eight. i know <laughs> i know but i mean the I mean, like the movie "Come On, Come On," the kid in that is the incredible. Kid's good in that, yeah, that's true. And he feels like a real person. That doesn't seem yeah. like a kid giving a performance. I mean, the kid's not bad in this movie, but he is giving a little kid performance. <laughs> and he is in pretty much every scene. So yeah, but I would have uh, like liked I, more I, from him. <laughs> I agree I, with I you actually, there. <laughs> I basically think that the adults are more interesting than the kids, even though this yes. is from a kid's point of view. There's some really good scenes between uh, the mom and dad, just sort of about. Um, because, you know, Belfast is their home, but it's like a place that's destructive and dangerous and there's not really much of a future for their kids there, but all their families there and, you know, there's a debate whether if they move somewhere else, you know, they'll probably face discrimination. And So just like weighing the pros and cons of leaving your home where you have a safety net and <laughs> opportunity for a place where you have opportunities, but you might feel alienated and, you know, depressed and stuff like that. So. I mean, it's a very awful situation this family finds themselves in, and it's hard to to sort of think about people throwing bricks through your front window and like your neighbor's house being set on fire. So, I don't, sometimes it was a little like too, but you know, because it, it is from a kid's point of view, it obviously isn't going to go super like dark into the troubles. But sometimes I don't think you got enough of a sense of how dangerous the time they're living in is, although. You know, they definitely attempted to do it. Into- yeah, I mean, they definitely like try to show it, and like it ends with like a sort of riot, and it starts with a riot. But uh, I don't know. Maybe that's maybe now that I'm thinking about it, maybe that's an unfair criticism. But anyway, I think we both like this. Neither of us like really loved it. Um, yeah. But I recommend it to anyone who like likes good movies and wants to see an interesting movie that will probably get <laughs> Oscar nominations. Uh, probably won't appear on in either of our top 10 lists to, to end the year. No. But. And besides Kenneth Branagh being a really respected actor, like I don't really get the, like that he, I think is kind of on the short list to be nominated for best director. Like that seems yeah. kind of, you know, it's, it's fine, but it's nothing. It seems like one of those sort of narratives that just like it's put out in the air and sort of once it becomes a thing, people sort of just accept it and, and follow along. But I, and also I think they, Hollywood people really respect 
theater actors, especially like legendary theater actors. So yeah. it wouldn't be surprising last, to yeah. him get the same treatment like John Gilgud got for winning a supporting actor Oscar for Arthur or something yeah. like that. I think the la- it's interesting. I think the last Oscar nomination he got was for playing Laurence Olivier, which he kind of has a similar career uh, in my week for Oath Maryland. He was nominated the- for that? Yeah, Best Supporting Actor. Oh. Not Albert Brooks for Drive and not, <laughs> you know, you know. My Week with but, Maryland is definitely one of those Oscar movies that yeah, sort of catches the voters at the right time and then nobody ever watches again. I know, it has like a 67 on Metacritic. Yeah, and I no haven't thought about watches. that movie in like a decade since you just right. mentioned it. <laughs> yeah, I think Belfast is going to be one of those too. Yeah, I think it's connection to Hope and Glory, which I was one of my favorite movies, actually. We'll sort of always, I'll always sort of think of it as a double feature with Hope and Glory, which is, we'll keep it sort of in my memory, but I, I don't see other people really like being like, oh, Belfast, that's my favorite movie. I don't expect right. many people to ever say that, which I think right. people could say about the next two we're going to talk about, even if, uh, you know, some people might think it'd be crazy. I do think some people actually might think the new West Side Story is like the best thing ever. Uh, <laughs> but we'll get to but that in time. Uh, the next one we are going to talk about is Licorice Pizza, directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, who's also done There Will Be Blood, Boogie Nights, uh, and a whole bunch of other modern American classics. It stars Alana Heim and Cooper Hoffman, who you mentioned before are both first time actors. Um, it's hard to sort of describe what the movie is about, but it's basically a series of vignettes set in the early 1970s in the San Fernando Valley in California. And it centers on a 15 year old actor and entrepreneur named Gary Valentine and the 25 year old girl that he falls in love with. Uh, it premiered in New York and LA in November 26th and opened wide on Christmas Day, a Metacritic score of 90, a Rotten Tomatoes score of 91. And the winner of the National Board Review Award for Best Film and Best Director. Uh, what did you think of Licorice Pizza, Jonathan? I I think with Paul Thomas Anderson, he's one of those directors that you kind of have to watch some of his films more than once to truly appreciate it. But on just one viewing, it's uh, a really entertaining, sweet uh, film with kind of a little bit of a edge of danger and tension throughout it. I think that he does a really good job. <laughs> of having what's like scenes. the pre-internet danger where it's like people might know what happens to me <laughs> for a long time well there's <laughs> it's so evocative of this time period and it just it's so good at uh and not you watch some movies like you know i, I like this one okay but trial of the chicago seven it mm-hmm. never quite ever gets over feeling like a bunch of modern actors dressing up in like yes. funny hair and costumes like liquor's pizza feels like really grounded and like it's not manufactured it's so yeah. lovingly done the costumes the production design you know the fact that pta is a big proponent of shooting on film and i just feel like this movie is it you're talking about the previous one you know you could have as a double feature i think that the great double feature of this one would be once upon a time in hollywood to me this oh, yeah. is like pta's you know kind of you know and people said that hollywood was you know, one of Tarantino's most kind of 
laid back films, at least for a majority of the film. It wasn't one of his most plot heavy films and licorice pizza is even more. So Uh, there's, there's just these kind of vignettes that are strung along, but that's what it's like being a young kid or a young adult who's not really structured in their lives and doesn't have a real career goal. And it's just a film in a weird way, it's it's also kind of reminded me of like Dazed and Confused. It's kind of like a hangout movie yes. where you're just watching people go about their lives. <laughs> and um, I think that besides PTA's direction, I think that the two lead actors, especially Alana Haim, they're just so magical. Like they just, they're just, even though they've never acted before, they just belong on a movie screen. Well, especially in those roles. It's like so perfectly cast. Um it's especially worked for uh, Cooper Hoffman is his name, right? Who played Gary Valentine. Right. Who we should like, mention is. is Philip Seymour Hoffman's son, who was a collaborator, probably like in the most Paul Thomas Anderson movies, which is, I don't can't think of who yeah. else would be up there. Yeah. He's uh, and it's interesting that in interviews, PTA was saying that Alana Haim, even though she never acted before, you know, she has a singer with her sisters who we should mention are also in the film along with. (laughs) Which I didn't know. I'm a big fan of the band. So that was a very pleasant surprise for me. (laughs) But uh, he said in interviews that she really should be, uh, he thought of her like up there with Daniel Day-Lewis and Joaquin Phoenix, like she is a real actor. And mm-hmm. I think she certainly should be nominated from what I've seen for best actress. Like I would be very happy. I think she's kind of on the cusp. Um, but yeah, I, I think that it's also fun. I almost don't get, want to give away. It, I, I, I didn't watch the trailer for this film. I never did. I didn't want <laughs> it was to. hard to give away anything for the movie. The trailer well, is it, sort of like life on Mars with cool shots. <laughs> Well, but there are major uh, actors that have basically extended cameos in the film. Yes. And Um, one who was just nominated for a SAG award for best supporting actor. And now I think might actually get an Oscar nomination. (laughs) Right. I think it's probably perhaps more likely than getting Lita. I mean, we we're talking about Bradley Cooper who plays a real movie producer, uh, John Peters. It dominates every second that he's on screen. (laughs) Right. And it's, one of those scenes like I was talking about at the beginning where it's very funny and but there's also there's this tension like one of the more nerve-wracking scenes I saw last year was uh, them driving the big truck backwards down the winding hills <laughs> yeah and and uh, John Peters uh, is kind of roaming the, <laughs> the, the streets and he's almost like a like nightmare a, I know and uh, I yeah, it's interesting that the connection that he, uh, the real man, was dating Barbara Streisand and was a producer on the '76 version of *A Star Is Born*, and then Bradley Cooper was the one who directed yeah. and starred in the most recent version. And that guy's still alive, these, apparently. Yeah, he well, PTA talked in an interview about meeting him and kind of just pitching him, you know, telling him what his idea was and to get his blessing, and he said that you know you're a great artist and I don't want to tell you what to do. My only comment the only thing i would change is i would not just yell at everyone i wouldn't just yell at alana hames character i would hit on her and he changed it for that and that line where he there's a the best part in the movie where he smashes a store window and these two women walk by and he just turns around and starts walking and he says 
do you like peanut butter sandwiches? <laughs> that was an actual pickup line. He got that from John Peters. <laughs> That's one he of the said, scenes that like feels like the most sort of surreal and dreamlike in the whole movie, which can sort of feel dreamlike because like just sort of stuff just happens and you just sort of watch it happen without any sort of real explanation. Like at one point he gets arrested and you're just sort of like, what's going on? <laughs> like, why is oh. this happening? <laughs> and like the other main big actors, there's a scene with Sean Penn basically playing William Holden. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's like Alana Haim's character is kind of sort of uh, auditioning an aspiring for the film. Yeah, yeah. Uh, auditioning for the film Breezy. Yeah. Uh, early film directed by Clint Eastwood. But anyway, there's a scene with Sean Penn and Tom Waits. And that scene, you're just like, wait, what's happening? It's like, yeah. there's just this kind of weird, like just, it's kind of that thing where you're in a place and there's just this, these weird incidents happening. You don't really know why things are happening. Um, but yeah. <laughs> That's a logic of its own. It just sort of goes. I know. And, and all of a sudden the, 40 people are walking on a golf course. <laughs> right. And it's just interesting seeing the connections to that time period. Like, oh, that woman is, you know, obviously supposed to be Lucille Ball. Yeah. And it's like yours, mine and ours. And and this, I mean, there's all these kind of inside, not even really jokes, but just references. Like the fact that Leonardo DiCaprio's father plays the waterbed salesman. Yeah. And uh, Tim Conway's son plays uh, a role in the film and Paul Thomas Anderson's father was uh, the announcer for the Carol Burnett show in and real so, life like yeah and oh, wow. yeah Paul Thomas Anderson like <laughs> grew up like knowing Tom Conway and Harvey Corman that's and, crazy yeah his father was the voice of ABC he was the one and next Saturday on the love boat you know oh my that god was, I didn't know that I know so PTA uh, one thing I always found fascinating about him is that you know, he's made movies like Boogie Nights, you know, and Magnolia early on that are kind of these Scorsese, Robert Altman, like sprawling. Yeah, cast tons films. of characters. And then, but he's been so unpredictable, not in a bad way, but he's like, then he does an Adam Sandler film, this yeah. really dark, odd, you know, romantic comedy. And then he does this like American epic masterpiece, There'll Be Blood. And, yeah. and it's like it's out of like, the 1940s. <laughs> But what's so strange is that he makes movies like There Will Be Blood and The Master and Phantom Thread. But like you see him in interviews and he's like this goofy guy from, you know, the valley. Like he's like this not I wouldn't call him like a surfer dude, but he's just kind of sort of like a soccer dad. And he's yeah he's married to Maya Rudolph who yeah. has a small part in the film he has four kids yeah and he you wouldn't like he he's not like this reclusive brilliant Terrence Malick uh Stanley Kubrick I mean I do actually think he's brilliant and to my for my money of the kind of generation uh you know like Quentin Tarantino Wes Anderson Steven uh, Soderbergh yeah, the kind of ones that started in the very late uh, 80s, early 90s. He, to me, he's like the best and yeah. he is brilliant, but he gives he, like he isn't in real life and in interviews what you might imagine someone to make inherent vice in the master. Well, especially the master in the Holy Blood. You, you expect like yeah. a J.D. Salinger type guy. <laughs> I know. But yeah, Licorice Pizza is one of his most um Laid it's back definitely one movies. of his most fun movies because like the master and there will be blood are pretty intense I mean, magnolia has fun parts but like it's like a really emotional very like right. serious movie boogie nights is a lot of fun but it's also like about the porn industry which can be a little off-putting i think 
there's not right. really anything like that in this movie although like there has been some discussion around the central sort of romance which is between a 15 year old and a 25 year old but, but they see, do a really think... good job of making it very chaste like they don't even like kiss until the final frame of the movie right yeah i mean I... Well, spoiler alert but i well... mean I th- <laughs> <laughs> sorry I mean, I do think that it's even a little bit loaded to say a uh, romance. Like, there. Yeah. I mean, she almost the entire film. She's like, "You're this is 15. weird." I, <laughs> yeah. I know. She, she's questioning like, "Why am I even hanging out with him?" And you know, I, yeah. And uh, it's like one but of then my. She's also pointed, like his business partner, stuff like right. That. Well, one of the things that's so funny about the movie is how. Um, one one of my friends mentioned how we should uh, say the title licorice pizza it's was a was a record store back there yeah it's like a regional california record store i think but there's also you could kind of read it as licorice pizza as two things that kind of don't go together uh or kind of seem unusual together and you could say that the two lead characters are that way that's definitely true um uh, but it's also i think interesting how cooper hoffman's character he's so energetic and uh kind of mature for his age but at the same time there's these flashes in the film there's these bits where you still see you know he's just a kid like at the end of the scene with john peters they're like putting gas in the car and they're pretending like jerk off and (laughs) well that was like especially kid like but there's also like times when he's not there and other characters talk about him you sort of realize that he's just like a kid (laughs) like yeah alana hames character like has a interaction with a character I think was played by Steven Spielberg's daughter and just like the way I remember when they're in the bathroom you know what scene I'm talking about mm-hmm, and right. it was just like they were talking about him I was like oh he is just like a high schooler <laughs> you sort of forget that because he's like starting businesses and like going on trips to New York City to perform on like late night shows and stuff like that but apparently he's based on a real guy uh oh yeah he's like the producing was, uh, partner for who was it again Tom Tom Hanks, Hanks yeah and he like, was a child actor who like started different businesses in the seventies and became friends with like Jonathan Demi. And then after that, Tom Hanks, I guess through like Philadelphia or something like that. But um, I don't, I don't know. I like this a lot. I think it's sort of unusual that this is like winning, you know, national border review movie uh, awards, for like best film and is like a best picture contender because it isn't really about anything and doesn't really, make any statements about anything it's not like it's like trying to convince you of something or change your attitude towards something or make a statement about any sort but of topics it's just sort of like about i think uh, a huge part alive, of really i i think the major thing though is that it's a paul thomas anderson film i think yeah. a lot of people think like me he's like way up there is one there's of a certain weight to anything he puts out i guess right and it's like i remember uh the year american hustle came out which arguably has more, you know, a little bit more stakes because uh, it's like a crime film. Yeah. Uh, but I remember David Dimby of The New Yorker that year put it as his favorite film of the year. And he said, this movie's not important. It doesn't have some great political statement. It's just immensely entertaining. And I think it's the best film of the year. Like a film doesn't have to be important or have to be a message yeah film or but i either. mean the academy awards and people like that definitely respond to that like parasite was sort of a statement when it was like showed international movies are just as important and right. you know moonlight was definitely like showing 
right. black directed movies deserve awards and stuff like that. <laughs> I mean, this is one I don't expect to win because it is just sort of a Paul Thomas Anderson. Hey, I made a movie here. Here it is. But it I probably will get nominated because it's, you know, it's extremely well crafted and <laughs> is just like an absolute pleasure to watch. And the performances are incredible. So it's not like you could say it isn't immaculate in any sort of way it's not like it's it is a great movie but it's just so unusual because it's like about basically nothing and sort of ends really suddenly and you walk out of it and you're like i really enjoyed that but uh i don't know it sort of leaves you a little bit after you walk out it like sort of leaves you in its glow a little bit though because it's like such a i don't even know if it's heartwarming but it's just like feels good when you're watching it you know what i mean it just it put it so puts you in a time and place, even yeah. though not all everything that happens in it is like completely cheery. Well, it's not like we were even alive in the seventies, so it's not like we can even recognize. Right, it. like oh, it got this right. But when well, I was watching, it, I was like, this is what the seventies feels like. And, and what's interesting too, though, is that neither was Paul Thomas Anderson uh, in the yeah. sense that he was born in nineteen seventy, so he doesn't like he can't have like really strong memories <laughs> of, of the year the gas shortage set. and stuff like that. I know he was like three or something, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, maybe he's but, just uh, got an incredible memory. <laughs> well, uh, well, I mean, it's like the same thing with Paul, uh, with uh, Tarantino in Hollywood. I mean, he was born yeah. in like 63 or something. So he was, you he know, was living in like Tennessee still. or something like that. I know. But I was going to mention that I think it's very likely that he'll get nominated at least for best screenplay. And yeah. I think it's, he, you know, I would not be surprised if he gets nominated for best director. And yeah. it would be very cool if he won best screenplay because he's been nominated eight times and never won because he's someone who writes basically every movie he directs not even basically it is every movie he directs right right yeah he's been nominated for writing boogie nights magnolia there will be blood inherent vice and he's been nominated for directing for there will be blood and phantom thread yeah everyone thought he was gonna win there will be blood and the coen brothers won well, no. I mean, everyone thought the Coen Brothers were going to win. I mean, like that was really, yeah. No, I remember it being like win. very like these are the two. Which one is going to win it? And then it ended up being like the Coen Brothers won all of them. <laughs> I know that was when like they won the one award and they had to stay on stage because then they won the next one <laughs> and then it yeah. happened again. <laughs> I think everyone was predict like you know really. Like- I mean, I guess I was only like. 15 when it came out so maybe i have a foggy memory of 2007 i I mean to me they were like tied for best film of that year yeah uh and i think that uh there might be critics that thought that there will be blood should have but i think most like what was going to win like because it was winning like everything almost yeah when i mean daniel day lewis was winning every acting award oh yeah and to a certain extent i think his acting performance overshadowed it as like a directed and written movie to a certain extent, but also well, I, they were both competing for adapted screenplay that year because there were bloods yeah. based on oil. But right. now we're just talking about the 2007 Oscars. <laughs> I know, but yeah, I I, it, I would very much like to see uh, Alana Haim be nominated for best yes. actress. I'd be um, I'm very interested to see if she continues acting yeah. in the future because this is like a role that seemed basically written for her. And it seems to a certain extent the like movie was conceived around her performance because I think she was like cast way before Cooper Hoffman was. So I I would be really pissed off if she doesn't get nominated <laughs> and Lady Gaga gets nominated for. I still haven't uh, seen that, but I from what I've read, her performance is like basically a joke, <laughs> like, like doing a I, funny Italian accent. 
it, it sounds more Russian. I was expecting her to all of a sudden say, we're going to catch moose and squirrel. Oh, yeah. 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 It's it's I don't want to go reviewing House of Gucci because you haven't seen it. But boy, uh Beats is a much better film, period yeah. piece with a female performance by someone who hasn't acted much. Hey, you won't get any disagreements from me. Also, a member, not a member of Van Lady Gaga, but I guess a performing musical artist. Um, yeah. Talking of performing musical artists, our third movie is West Side Story. Uh, directed by Steven Spielberg, the director of Ready Player One and The Post. Uh, starring. Oh, wait, 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 no, 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 you don't. Last movies. No, the director of E.T., Saving Private Ryan, Jaws. Jaws. No, you don't mention, I, I want to mention one thing. They need to hire me or you for the DGA podcast where oh, they yeah? have uh, people interview because I remember they had Paul Schrader and they said uh, his directorial credits include gigolo they didn't say american gigolo and then they said dark which is the movie that he directed with nicholas cage that got taken away from him and they released it totally butchered and he released on the internet a director's cut of it called dark it's like he's directed like 25 films and you're gonna randomly like mention four movies i know it's like yeah so no spielberg uh you can say the last hey those were his last two movies I really like the posts, but yeah, yeah, I think I think this is his best one in, in some time. I'll say that much. Uh, starring Ansel Elgort, Rachel Zegler, and Ariana DeBose, along with a whole bunch of people who apparently had never acted before. It was like basically most of the cast, but also Rita Moreno, who was in the original 1961 version. Um, <laughs> it is a musical based on Shakespeare's Romeo, <laughs> Romeo and Juliet, set in 1950s Manhattan. I don't think I need to tell. The audience what west side story is about um <laughs> it premiered november 29th 2021 at lincoln center actually which is basically the site that a lot of the action of this movie takes place on before it was converted into lincoln center uh, a u.s wide release on december 10th a metacritic score of 85 <laughs> a rod traded score of 93 and the recent winner of the golden globe for best picture motion picture musical comedy Best Actress in a Musical Comedy and Best Supporting Actress. Um, do you like the original version of West Side Story? Is it Very like one of so. your like top musicals? Um, I, when we did our episode once with our five favorite musicals. It wasn't in my top five, but I, I yeah. thoroughly enjoyed. I think I've only seen it once, but I really liked the movie. So this was one I, I liked it a lot and I was feeling sort of you know, this one when it was announced, I was like, do we really need a, a new version of West Side Story? But uh, and going into this, I did not have very high expectations. But while I was watching it, it's just like uh, the score by Leonard Bernstein and the lyrics by Stephen Sondheim are like just so incredible that I didn't really care that there was already a first version. I was just sort of enjoying getting getting to experience a sort of new interpretation of the music. And uh, the sort of choreography, which is very influenced by the 61 version, but also has sort of different variations on it to make it uh, a little sort of more natural in the movements, a little less sort of stagey. Um, and that was sort of the big sort of takeaway, the difference from this one compared to the 1961 version, is that this definitely felt more grounded 
and more realistic. Uh, I guess you can ask the question, does West Side Story need to be grounded and realistic? But I definitely thought it was a fresh perspective on it. What did you think about the, the updated version of West Side Story? I thought it was incredibly well made. It's, you know, Spielberg is a master craftsman. He and had is, never made a musical before. I know. And it's lovingly made. It has Ansel Elgort. Uh, but <laughs> besides, I mean, he's not like terrible in the film, but no, uh, but basically everyone else is giving like a wonderful performance. Yeah. Um, I just never got over like, why is this movie made? Like I just, and I felt almost ungrateful because I was sitting there going intellectually, like this movie's so well-made, yeah. but I wasn't ever emotionally moved by it. And it just never, it, it, it just, it kind of just like, it, 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 it didn't soar. It just kind of like, I sat there admiring it and mm-hmm. the craft of it. And I just never felt like, I mean, I understand, like, I like the idea of them having more authentic casting. I get that there are some musical numbers that they alter from the original film. And <laughs> it's an interesting change. Like the, the America number, uh, very different streets, which was really well done, but I just kind of, I never, I just was like, why, why did this movie be, need to be made? It's so well made, but I kind of shrugged at the end of it and was kind of like, eh. And I felt almost ungrateful for feeling that way because it's so well made. Yeah. That's how I felt. I can understand that. I mean, I'd sort of felt the same way about it to a certain extent as I did about the new Macbeth, which, you know, we get like a new version of Macbeth every year. And I was just, it's sort of in the nature of stage plays and musicals to be adapted and reinterpreted, which... I think it, you could feel a little more sort of precious about it um, if it was like a singing in the rain, which is an original, you know, right. movie motion picture. But the fact that like this started as a stage production made me a little less sort of protect, not protective, because it's not like it's like my favorite movie or anything like that. But it needed less of a reason for existing because it's based on a stage production. Does that make any sense to you? Well, I mean, it's an interesting debate about is this even really a remake of the film or is he just doing a new film version of the original Broadway musical? Yeah. I mean, you could argue, well, Frida Moreno's in it, you know, it's in some ways. It's certainly aware film. of the 61 version. Right. And definitely and like version. borrows from it visually at some point. Right. Yeah. But there's also one weird problem I had with it where it's like even behind the stills photos or Spielberg talking in interviews like a lot of this film is like old school filming you know on sound stages or in actual locations in New York City but parts of it had this weird like sheen to it where it's like it just it felt kind of hollow do you know what I, do you I know definitely what get that yes it, but like some of the colors like looked sort of like touched up and stuff like that yeah, um, and it looked you know very like glossy in yeah. some aspects, which was sort of the opposite of the sort of down home in the rubble. Like in one of the scenes, like a guy puts a nail through <laughs> another kid's ear. So it sort of like presents itself as this like, you know, real 
hardcore representation of New York in the 50s, which was a pretty rough place with a lot of like racial violence and, you know, the police not necessarily knowing how to how to handle all of it. Um, some parts of it made me think of the John Frankenheimer movie, The Young Savages. Have you seen that? No. Where Burt Lancaster's trying to put some young gang members away for a stabbing of a, a Puerto Rican gang member. Um, it actually reminded me a lot of that at some points, but uh, I don't know. It's just a movie that I really enjoyed because like the music is just so good. Yeah. I mean, I know, did you not just feel like this is like great music when you were listening to it? And, I mean, some of the lyrics, like uh, the, the scene where they do the, like the recreation of the, uh, the balcony scene where they have it on the, the fire escape. I can't, right. it's like, what's the song? It's like Maria. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> some of the lyrics of that were so good i was like wow this music is just unbelievable i so. just i guess my problem was, was like there was nothing wrong with the film besides it's like it's like in every way like the performances the direction you're just staging. like this this doesn't the, feel like contemporary or necessary or yeah it's just like i it just felt uh i don't it's like i don't even know why i didn't respond to it it's yeah. just like I, I i like intellectually like realized how well done it was but i just i wasn't moved by it I wasn't bored by it. I just was yeah. kind of, I, I don't know. And I was definitely I do, not like, I hope Bernardo makes it as a boxer. Like I never really, any of the characters is like, Oh, I really hope they, they do well and get out of here. I do think that both Rachel Ziegler and Ariana DeBose are like exceptional. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And two I mean, like pretty iconic roles. So yeah, they were, were sort of like, you know, people are going to be very, not critical, but they're, you know, they're going to look at it with a magnifying glass and compare it to the original ones. But um, you can definitely say that it's a much better representation of, you know, like the Latin community than (laughs) the original version where you have like a Greek guy playing Bernardo and Natalie Wood playing Maria. Right. But I always like, I, someone wrote on Twitter when the film came out, like, but Natalie Wood is still wonderful in the original film. Like you shouldn't. Yeah. Uh, But I do think that, um, one thing I question though is like, w- w- like they must have like looked over the entire globe to find like some of these amazing actors. Why Ansel Elgort though? <laughs> Why, like really? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, what's what's the name of the actor who plays Tony in the original one who's in Twin Peaks? It's like Richard Beimer. Is that it? Oh, oh, uh, yeah. See, I don't like him in the original one either. So I'm just sort of okay with Tony being like. I don't know, a bit like off because I think his yeah. performance in the 61 one is like he's just like smiling too much. And <laughs> it's just like his body is like weirdly lanky. I don't I don't know. I'm just OK with Tony sort of being like like Romeo isn't he like the coolest guy in the world. <laughs> when well, you I read Romeo and Juliet, you're like, I just want to punch this Romeo guy. Well, some of the actors in the film, like um, who's the uh, actor's name is Mike Fe- uh, Feast or something. F.A.I. The one who SP. plays Riff. Yeah. Like he feels like a character actor from the back when the film is set. Like he feel like yeah. some of the uh, actors feel like kind of in a really good way, old school, like uh, Hollywood character actors. But Ansel Elgort just feels like a very 21st century guy. Like he looks like yeah. you know, he's going to like pose for Instagram <laughs> in the movie. You know, no, that's that's true. There's uh, certain actors that look like they they kind of are ageless or yeah. they uh, but he, he just seems i mean so many of the the sharks like look perfectly cast i mean that's something they, they got like really spot on is um just like the sharks and the jets because um 
I don't know. Parts of the the sixty one version, like kind of like don't make sense, and you're I'm okay with it because it's a musical from the sixties. But um, well, like, part of like, the thing why, is like, like why Tony stabs him like Bernardo. Like why does that happen? And I think it's like a really crucial plot point, but it like kind of doesn't make any sense. Romeo and Juliet. I mean, to I know. Get <laughs> But the, I, I think the sort of big misunderstanding with Romeo and Juliet is that everything that happens in that is supposed to be taken seriously. While the whole play is sort of like a parody of, you know, people thinking that like a 13-year-old and a 15-year-old getting off and marrying each other is romantic. And Shakespeare's like, this is stupid. <laughs> Here's but, a question. Do you think that the Spielberg version is as good or even better, is it less like? How do you compare it to the original film? It's so, I mean, it's so tough to judge movies that came out thirty years before I was born because they sort of come with a certain sense of gravity and legacy. Because I've that seen a movie film I critics, see in theaters just never will be able to live up to. You know what I mean? Well, um, but you so you're saying that you know old old movies are better than all new movies? No, but it's remakes of old movies. I mean. <laughs> Well, I mean, I there, think I mean, that... there are very few like remakes of older stuff from like this just blew it away and like sort of made the original unnecessary. Um, I mean, I guess well, that sort of happens with Shakespeare adaptations sometimes. Like one so. of my favorite film critics, Michael Phillips, was not ever a big fan of the 61 film. And he thinks that by leaps and bounds, Spielberg made a better. better film. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think for the most part, this one is better. Um I mean, like the America sequence in the original is unbelievable. Um, but the one in this one's really good too, though. It's it is, different. and it's so different. It's, yeah, I like this one better. Like, I'll definitely watch this one. Oh man! But if like you were to be like, you know, like there's like a eight year old who's interested in musicals, like, and they're like, I want to watch West Side Story. You're gonna show them the '61 version, like, and then if they like that, you'll show them this one. So. It's I don't it'll never like replace the original West Side Story. So that like I guess adds well, you just to your... said that it's better though. I know, <laughs> but that's like it but the first one is so important to like the history of like the movie musical as a genre because it's representative of like when they like dominated Hollywood where you have My Fair Lady and The Sound of Music and you know musicals just don't occupy the same cultural space these days as they did back then. Oh. I mean, so it's interesting that, like, I mean, it's this is a whole other discussion in a way, but like, the movie is really not done nearly as well at the, as, at the box office as you would expect a Spielberg yeah. film opening at Christmas would. Yeah, but, and it costs yeah. a ton. It costs like 120 million or something like that. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I have a feeling this is one I might watch again. Yeah, in uh, you know, a few years and be like, oh wait, this is an amazing film, and I just kind of was unappreciative of. I don't know. It's like I saw it in a long, I was like catching up after I finished the semester teaching and I just like watched a bunch of movies in a few days. It was just like one in the middle of them. And I just kind of, I don't know, this, this, this shouldn't really affect your review, but you can't deny that like your experience watching it. Like I saw it in an IMAX that wasn't like a really like legitimately huge IMAX. It was one of those they kind of called Limax, you know? Um, (laughs) And there was like seven people in the theater. Yeah. And it just felt kind of like. Underwhelming. It's like a Spielberg. And it's just like, I saw it like, you know, at 10 at night and I got out at like one 30 in the morning. No, even later. Viewing conditions definitely influence. 
yeah. how you think of a movie. I mean, I saw a hidden life in the most uncomfortable chair I've ever sat in. And that made it like <laughs> not nearly the experience I wanted it to be. So, I mean, you can't really take that away from it. Uh, but I mean, gun to so my I head, re- which one do I like better? I like the new one better, but yeah, I mean, it will never hold the same sort of space. And cause like the old ones and like has to be in like the AFI top hundred and stuff like that. Like it's part of like the canon, and this one never will. So it's just sort of hard to judge, but I definitely well, enjoyed this one more. But I mean, it's like there's the silent version of Ben Hur, and then decades later, the 59 version came out. Silence, like, like so different though, because I mean, the Ben Hur 1959 feels really old to people our age. I mean, they wouldn't even conceive of watching a three hour silent movie. <laughs> so, I mean, well, one of my controversial ones is I think Tim Burton's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is better, better than, than Willy Wonka. Yeah, because I've never been a fan of Willy Wonka, except for it's like yeah. it's funny. I think Gene Wilder like gives one of the greatest screen performances ever, but it's like the only thing I like about the movie. Like everything else about the movie, I think doesn't work. I I grew up reading Roald Dahl, and uh, so I think it's like Tim Burton. Like everything about the movie, like everything else works so well. But that that I think is a similar sort of case to. West Side Story and the 2021 version. It's just like it's impossible to dislodge the original. Uh, Well, but it's also like if you have a connection or not, like I've never had a connection to the Willy Wonka film except for really loving Gene Wilder in the role. I don't like anything else about the movie. And Tim Burton, I thought like he actually did it right. And like I feel like it's I'm an outlier in my opinion on it. No, you definitely are. And it's not like they're going to like, you know. And it the got teacher's reviews, absent, though. they're not going to show yeah. the Tim Burton version. They're going to show the, the one from the right. 70s. And it's not, and like, in the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory got good reviews. I mean, it has a 72 on Metacritic, which is like one of his better reviewed. And in a lot of ways, it's like years. much more true to the original story, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things is I was a big fan of Roald Dahl. Um, and, you know, there's just like Netflix the West... just bought the whole estate, right? Yeah, and interestingly, Spielberg did the BFG. The BFG? I know. Uh, I was thinking about including that as one of the director's previous movies. <laughs> I know, but uh, I mean, oh, here's a question: What is your favorite Spielberg film of this century? It's got to be. Oh shit! Okay, it's either Catch Me If You Can or Munich. I was just gonna, you know, instantly reaction say Munich, but then I was just like, oh, but I do like Catch Me If You Can. Munich is really good. It's also so different than I yeah. mean a lot of his other movies. Um, I love a political espionage thriller spy story so I mean that just hits all the marks and I'm a big fan of mine was written by Tony Kushner I think who also wrote that story yeah and he they wrote and Lincoln Lincoln. right so yeah I'm a you know some of Spielberg's films it's like they're so well made but I just they kind of leave me cold and I feel like if I rewatch them years later I might have a new opinion so we'll see yeah I definitely recommend it I'll be very curious to see what the legacy of this movie is. Like if, if people like, you know, show this to their kids and stuff like that, because, you know, I don't know. I just don't know if it's going to occupy anywhere near the sort of space that the original did. I mean, but the thing that it does have going for it is, you know, it still has the same Leonard Bernstein score and Stephen Sondheim lyrics and Leonard Bernstein is like one of the great American geniuses. So, right. um, Well, I mean, it's like the, star is born there's been so many versions i don't think that there's a definitive version yeah i mean i think that in like little women or something it's like there's yeah it's like the most recent version of a star is born in the most recent version of little women i think a lot of people think are 
you the know, best one, one, one of the be- very best at least yeah. i mean it's not like oh why they have to do this again yeah. and uh you know when people talk about little women i think that you know they're it's like they go up and down like the i mean i think the barbara streisand chris christopherson one is probably the weakest yeah you know and i think the little women from 1949 with june allison and <laughs> elizabeth taylor is like the weakest of the ones i've seen but you know it's like uh maybe they'll do a west side story another 40 years from well now. that's uh, do you think that we're gonna see like a trend of remakes of 60s and 50s musicals like we well, did with uh sort of fairy tales in the last 10 years well, i could definitely Disney see there films. being like a my fair lady come out but i year. but the problem well that would be really interesting because of like well that was a remake already of pygmalion yeah but i think that it's interesting that like that would have to have like a me too rewrite it, on it it would definitely have a different sort of aspect to it right but i don't think that that will really necessarily happen because like you said musicals are really not in the zeitgeist no you know it would be like i mean to me it's funny because like like, tiktok's so big but i guess that's very different than a musical in a two hour and 43 (laughs) minute west you know musical the exact opposite (laughs) well but i think too part of it is like i i mean i don't think there was any part of spielberg that was like oh i can make a bunch of money and like let's remake a movie like i think he like really was connected to the material and it sounds like you know it uh, the 61 version would have come out when he was like a teenager or early teen. So, I mean, I'm sure that the the 61 version has a sort of special place for him. And Not I think I heard in an interview time. that uh, he like, you know, loved the the cast reporting on vinyl, which apparently was like a big thing in the 60s is people buying vinyls of cast recordings. Like, I think The Sound of Music was like the best selling album of the whole decade. Um, right. So. One of my friends said that he remembers growing up more so than the film, his family listening to the record and yeah. having the record in his house. I was going to say West Side Story, not Spielberg's first remake. What else has he done at the remake? Uh, we're including like every scene from Ready Player One. Um, I, what other one is a remake? Uh, Always. Uh that's yeah. like the one about like the pilot who dies or something like that. Audrey Hepburn, yeah. uh, Richard Dreyfus. That's yeah, like his least... sort of uh, Empire of the Sun era, right? Right, his kind of weird era where. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I uh, watched on his birthday in December last month uh, the two most recent films of his I hadn't seen. Both came out ninety uh, seven. I saw Amistad. Uh, yeah, and. Uh, the Lost World Jurassic Park oh. feature. <laughs> what yeah. a weird double feature. Well, he uh, had the first Jurassic Park in Schindler's List the yeah. same year. Yeah. Amistad the, was uh, a classic for uh, AP US history. Yeah. Now you can show in. it because it's rated R and you'd get fired if you showed an R rated. Wow. Movie. That's what AP classes are for. Advanced placement. Yeah. It's college. <laughs> it's yeah. mature people. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of Spielberg, but um, I kind of this. And it's I, left I, you I cold. Even, this left you cold. Well, I was about to say it left me cold, but it didn't. Like it, it didn't. It just didn't move me. It, it made you question why you were cold because you thought it yeah. was so good. <laughs> that makes it's sense. Like, it's like it's like I was like everything about this movie is so well made, but I just was kind of like shrugged at the end of it, yeah. and I just felt like ungrateful for uh, this movie that's so well made. Well, but, I thought it was great. I thought I thought it had some really good takes on the sort of uh, staging which, is better, yeah. I should say, of the of the musical numbers. I like we the both, Office of Corrupt You one a lot. 
we both have a number of films that we should see before we do a top 10 list, but yes. of, right now, would this be in your top 10 of the year? Yeah, probably. It'd be like, uh, definitely not top five, but I think it would, it would make the top 10. Yeah, yeah I think okay. so. All right. But well, that being I said, see. there's a lot to be seen. There's a lot still yeah. to, to be discussed. I mean, we're still, I think, like a month away from Oscar nominations coming out, uh, which is unusual because most years, non-COVID, they come around this time. So, yeah. But yeah. All right. <laughs> Thank you for listening. We'll be back with, we will be back with you guys next time. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> is that right about now? <laughs>